Welcome to The Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Ann Snyder is a writer and convener committed to exploring questions of class and culture, moral beauty, and a beatitudinal faith. She is the editor-in-chief of Comment Magazine, which is a publication of Cardus, a think tank devoted to renewing North American social architecture. She's a senior fellow of the Trinity Forum. She directs the Philanthropy Roundtable's Character Initiative, and she's a fellow at the Center for Opportunity Urbanism, a Houston-based think tank that explores how cities can drive opportunity for the bulk of their citizens. So many think tanks. Ann Snyder has a lot of irons in the fire, so I was especially grateful that she agreed to be a guest on the Habit Podcast. Ann Snyder, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast with me today. Oh, thanks for having me. So you are the editor-in-chief of Comment Magazine, which is part of the, what do you call Cardus? Is it a think tank? Is it a... Yep, a think tank in Canada, yes. Yeah, right. Um, And so I just wanted to sort of start with with some of the um, the things that, that... you say in the in the manifesto uh, of your magazine. Well, one thing you say is that you're that, that you're not another worldview magazine. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, I should first caveat by saying I did not write this manifesto. Although when I was thinking about stewarding this next chapter of the magazine's life, I read it. Mm-hmm. Um, predecessor Jamie Smith, I think, had a, quite a hand in mm-hmm. penning that. And I said, "Oh, this is the right place for me." So I identify with it, but I can't say I'm the original brain. I guess I, sh- I guess I meant you as a, as the plural. Yeah. I should have said y'all. Yeah, yeah. No, that's it's that's great. So um, that's a good question. Why why do we say we're not another? Um, I think probably because we have we try to have such a public facing um, for the common good emphasis. So our tagline is public theology for the common good. Mm-hmm. But there's a fine line, I think. I mean, uh, we would definitely commission essays um, to voices that would try to bring a quote unquote like biblical worldview to mm-hmm something in the sciences or this great crevice in our cultural moment or, Mm -hmm. but I think that language, well, A, to me, I hear that language and it sounds quite evangelical and comments a little bit more of a deeply ecumenical magazine. It has Mm -hmm. sort of reformed roots. Um, But I think our general posture is how do we try to equip those who are often in positions of institutional leadership um, but not always. How do we equip those who think in terms of their civic roles? Many, you know, mm-hmm. most of us have many of them. You know, we're wives, neighbors. Um, you know, we manage people, we serve people, uh, volunteers, etc. How do we think about what of the Christian faith in particular lends wisdom to really serving the common good as best we can? So we, t- I think we begin more from a sociological place, and then huh. think say we sort of are running from this assumption that um, you know, as people of faith, we are meant to care for this world in which we live, uh-huh. um, and we don't want to draw necessarily really sharp lines between secular and sacred. So I don't know if that kind of answers uh. your question, but. It's it's partly probably we feel maybe that language, the worldview language is a little like 20th century <laughs> um, and sets up some us versus them, mm. just even in sort of unconscious as people hear it. So I think we, we just try to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing you say 
the organization says in that manifesto is uh, we believe in institutions, which is kind of an unstylish thing, <laughs> right? <laughs> Tell me about that. Uh, you, you believe in institutions. Uh, yeah, it is unstylish. I think especially for like millennials and younger, um, mm-hmm. but probably for all, anyone like who's lived in the West since the 60s, it's a little unstylish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, so a few different things. I mean, the word institution is thrown around. It's one of those words that's thrown around so often. And we don't, I think a lot of the time it's not clearly defined because it can mean multiple things. Um, I mean, I think first of all, when we say that, when Comet Magazine says that we're sort of trying to suggest a posture that is a little bit skeptical of kind of this notion of a self-made person and to some degree skeptical of things like finding your true self without help from the outside. We tend to be suspicious of individualism. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're also kind of skeptical of the latest sort of trend out there culturally, psychologically. That's not to say we don't want to respect and hear um, and give voice to, but I think there's an there's something about the durability of what an institution is across mm-hmm. generations that we really want to honor. And then I think there's, um, you know, and this is not at all unique to us. I think we bring an interesting theological flavor to what another like sibling publication, like national affairs, which you've all been, um, runs and he's done a lot of work thinking around institutions and what are they and mm-hmm. how have they shifted in terms of the public's view of them over the years. Um, but we're kind of trying to inhabit that middle voice and middle space mm-hmm. between sort of policy and kind of government questions and the individual. And that's this like, you know, very rich territory of family and religion and commerce and the arts and the sciences and um, neighborliness and place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, this is, so anyways, I guess, first of all, it's a posture to, and like real attentiveness to that middle space, which very rarely seems to get covered in our, you know, mainstream media. Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. um, and it's just to say, I think when you think of an institution at its best, um, they are meant to be formative, which means they're kind of normative. Like they should, they should be oriented. I used to, this is a fancy word, but toward a telos, like an end that mm-hmm. they can name. And there's sort of a moral nature to the way in which, um, you know, our, whether we know it or not, we're like likely being shaped by the institutions that, um, we're a part of, yeah. um, you know, and they're not, it's not purely, contractual, like the rules of a journalistic profession, for instance, which is sort of where I come from. They're not just like mere traffic regulations. They're kind of deeply woven into the practices and behaviors um, and sensibilities of the people who practice them and like a yeah. relationship to the craft of teaching or an athlete's relationship to her sport or yeah. a farmer's relationship to his land is just like not an individual choice that can be easily reversed yeah. um, when certain kinds of like psychic losses exceed psychic profits. So anyways, it's um, kind of trying to lend a bit more of a covenantal sense that's transgenerational. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the final thing I'll just say is, um, and I, I debate this a lot in my own work. I study in communities a lot and institutions. And sometimes I wonder, is there a different, you know, my, I'm uh, kind of right at the border between millennial and gen X and, uh-huh. You know, those younger tend to be all about community, but have a struggle a lot more with institutions because of their inherent sense of hierarchy or yeah. too much structure or whatever. Um, 
And I think there's something about an institution that at its best um, is can figure out how to accommodate pluralism and like hold diversity in a way some, and communities can as well. But there's something about an institution because you're trying to think, you're, I don't know, there's a little bit more of a real politique. Um, you're thinking about the structures that enable people who are often quite different sort of work towards a common goal that is beyond themselves. That's interesting. So, uh, so a, an institute, you're saying an institution is almost by, if not by definition, at least by de facto in practice has to accommodate a pluralism that, that other, like other affiliations may not be as good at. Yeah. And I think that's okay. I mean, I've been thinking lately a comment we've actually thought about commissioning an essay called uh, Maslow's hierarchy of pluralism, just, (laughs) and, uh, um, yeah, I guess if I were to write that, I, where I would begin is just this instinct that it's okay, like that some of us have, you know, at the smallest, mo- most intimate level of our attachments and those that are probably most deeply forming us day in, day out, most likely those are not very pluralistic communities, like your yeah. family or, but then you go out and, you know, I think, I don't know if it's a psychologist who once said this, I don't know who said this, but I love this phrase, like the best adventures always flourish or fly from a secure base. And there's mm-hmm. something about like, I think it's okay if I have to be someone who's very pro pluralism and partly I just grew up very cross-culturally and I sort of always saw difference as a, as an enriching thing, yeah. um, even difference in belief. Um, but I also think we all need sort of the, there's something to be said for ex- exclusivity and moral coherence at the most intimate level that then enables you to get up into more sort of public institutions that, um, you know, I'm thinking of one of the very few institutions left in our U.S. society that um, still has so much of the public's trust, and that's the military. Mm -hmm. And they're obviously a very interesting combination of, on the one hand, being very regimented, and there's a lot of moral coherence in terms of people's understanding of why they're there to serve. Um, the rituals that are implemented to try to enforce a certain shared set of norms, yeah. those strict rituals, right? Yeah. But they have found a way to be, you know, one of our most successful integrating institutions racially and across religion and so on. And, uh, and military is very imperfect, but I think it's just interesting that we, as a society, it's one of the few institutions we would, at least by the polls, we still trust as a large one. And there's something about the way in which they've been able to enforce like kind of thick moral coherence mm-hmm. um, with, a, a, you know, very, very hodgepodge yeah. membership. It makes me think about uh, when now I can't remember where C.S. Lewis probably in, in mere Christianity talks about the idea of a, um, of a, a parish system of church where you just go to church with whoever is in your neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. 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 Whereas, you know, we, especially in the States, are accustomed to the idea of going and, and, you know, driving a little distance to find the the church that lines up with your. Yeah. Yeah. uh, It's funny you say that. I have a good friend who actually does a lot of studying. Most of his expertise is in um, failed states and failing states like national Mm -hmm. sovereign states that are out. But now he's like sort of turning that expertise to the United States as we're like this like dramatic time. Um, and so he studies social fabric and how does that relate to 
a state strength or country strength or not, or society strength. Anyways, he's also modern Orthodox Jewish, and he has been kind of exposed to conversations within the American Christian world the last few years around, um, I've, some of your listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with this notion of the Benedict option, yeah. um, the sort of argument that people of faith should really thicken their spiritual formation practices and and perhaps, you know, withdraw from mainstream culture, sort of purify and strengthen themselves. Um, and so anyways, he's sort of sympathetic to that argument as a someone who lives in a deeply like Orthodox Jewish community, um, but often says, you know, you Christians are so vague. Like whenever I ask for clarity of how you would actually live this out, you never have very, you know, a very good answer. And he said, we're, why don't you just think about like, it's very useful to us in the Jewish community or in the Orthodox Jewish community that we don't drive on the Sabbath. And that just means that our uh, synagogue is right there within, you know, five to 10 blocks. Yeah. That very tangible, practical nudge of that sort of law, which then forces you all to go to the same place often with probably people who have, you know, are quite, you know, well, in that community, probably less different than, say, I would find in my church in my neighborhood. But, um, you know, and then there's like a consistency of mutual commitment throughout the week because there's just that geographical uh, proximity. And um, anyways, I just just to jump off what you said, I I, um, yeah, I, I still think in some ways, whenever we talk about sort of social fabric and social architecture, which you may get into, like you have to think about the bounds of a local place and yeah. sort of surrendering yourself to that over and above any other sort of perfect set of ideals you might have, you know, yeah. in, a, in a community's membership. Yeah. So at Comment Magazine, y'all talk about the idea of renewing social architecture since you, since you use that phrase, yeah. let's, let's go in that direction. Um, and when you speak of social architecture, you're, you are, you are obviously talking about things beyond the life of the mind, right? <laughs> you're yeah. talking about the place we live, you know, places yeah. and people. And, and, and yet, you know, as a, as a magazine, your, your currency is the life of the mind, right? I mean, any, any thoughts on, on how you, how does, what is the question here? <laughs> how does no, I, that, I, 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 the life of the mind when, when all you've got is the life of the mind as an editor? Right, right. No, it's a beautiful question. You're honestly hitting <laughs> my core sort of tensions every day that I feel sure. in myself, actually, um, especially this year when early on in this pandemic, there was just so much pain and suffering. And I was trying to figure out what is the role of words and cognition and the intellect in a magazine and trying to serve all of that meaningfully. So, and I haven't, I don't know all the answers yet, but I've tried to do some things. So I think we can get into that, but um, yeah. So a couple of things just purely, and a lot of, I, you know, some people roll their eyes when they hear social architecture and think that's just like a very fancy verbose phrase. I personally like it because I think it gets at again, the sort of vital role of place. And when we talk about social architecture, we're, I think, which is really Mark Cardis's phrase, but comment that tries to live into that and contribute to it as a magazine. We're just, I mean, it's getting back to the institutions question, but we're just, we basically mean sort of the visible and invisible scaffolding that sort of shapes and holds our common life. Um, And that's everything from actual architecture, like the power of buildings and spaces and proportions and cities and design to 
the institutions and norms that that they might perpetuate for good or e- for good or ill, um, and the various spheres of civil society, law, family, religion, commerce, et cetera, education. Um, to that, you know, and the social piece is like referencing that all that we try to design, even in our policies and our businesses, should always be attendant to what we would see as that most fundamental unit of reality, which is not an individual, but is actually a human relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's kind of what we mean by it. And then I'm time out. Can you back up just one second? Yeah. The yeah. most basic unit of what is a relationship rather than in, 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 in um, the most basic. I might be getting myself in tricky water here, but I would say the most basic unit of reality or, or maybe just say unit of meaning or measurement. And that's three different things, I guess, but <laughs> is, is the relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, between it's sort of like what lies between people. It's not yeah. so much necessarily the individual, um, and that's not to get rid of the individual. But that is to say, the individual is defined in always in relationship to someone else. Um, so, is it is it fair to say that the relationship defines the individual more than the individuals define the relationship? Um. I know you didn't have. I'm not sure I would quite say that. I think it's probably an even dance. I think it's a mysterious dance there. Uh, I don't. We're about to start talking about the Trinity or something all of a sudden. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I do think that mystery is like embedded into our very nature. And I'm no theologian, so I would not explain it. We probably aren't going to sort out the Trinity right here. No, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, and your question about. So how does that, how does this care for social architecture, our sort of desire to put some vocabulary around that? Because it's often an invisible space that doesn't fit into our normal, like even academic departments or the way think tanks design their, port, you know, their programs. Um, how does a magazine contribute to that? And I, and um, I mean, I kind of wrestle with this every day. I do feel with Comet in particular, I inherited a publication that has figured out in both tone as well as the mosaic of kind of, we have kind of a variety of content. We don't just do sort of big think essays. We try to weave in photo essays and narrative and poetry. And um, more recently, we're trying to encourage people to get together in small groups of six to 10 with like a bookmark discussing the themes in that issue, not so much as a book club, but also how does it relate to their own community? And we put like a little recipe in there. We're just encouraging people to get around tables because we do think of a magazine or I think of it at heart as an aspirational community. Um, I, you know, I think so it's partly like through tone, there's an element comment has always been a magazine that has really sought to, and I'm going to quote, um, James Hunter here, but um, sought to encourage and equip our readers to be faithfully present wherever they are, to to be as creative as possible in caring for their sphere of influence, mm-hmm. um, whether that's virtual or physical, and in basically like being a good neighbor. Um, and we like to provide the context within which people can think about that. Um, um, you know, I think more broadly, um, I have been really wrestling this year, as I said, in part because of the pandemic, in part because of everything that's been unleashed post-George Floyd. And, um, you know, I have this like draft on my computer that hasn't gone very far, but the title is like, church, where are you searching for the people of peace? Uh-huh. And in that, that's as much, that's frankly as accusatory as it is like genuinely wondering because 
um, in this year where everything's virtual. And like I said, I think there's just so much hidden suffering and there's a lot of fear in the air. There's a lot of people catastrophizing in this political year. Um, what is the role of a intellectuals and or an entity, namely a magazine, which by definition, um, you know, is sort of an elite organ of trying to shape public opinion. What is the role of that in the face of um, so much unemployment and people dying and so on? And I think, and I continue to struggle with this because I'm not sure, I'm not sure right now that say, and then again, I'm adding the faith layer here, but adding sort of um, theological reflection. I'm, I'm not sure every minute that, um, what we need is like better ideas coming from the quote unquote church. Yeah. Uh, I think what we probably need more of is, um, just many more people who are inspired and are also equipped when supported by others, sort of kindred spirits, who are embodying just a completely different way of life, like a way of thinking and acting and perceiving and living. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot this year about that very famous verse, um, you know, I'm the way, the truth and the life and how way is actually before truth. And uh, I, obviously they're interrelated, um, but I just think there's something about, I mean, it's interesting, your podcast is called The Habit. There's mm-hmm. something in this notion of just the small little, all the little choices we make in a day that make up a life. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people have critiqued the sort of modern day American Christianity for doing a really poor job of sort of forming the moral habits of its parishioners, of its people. Um, but I wonder sometimes if if we got a little less up here and went a little bit like below the neck in terms of somehow fashioning norms and behaviors and postures um, so that, um, you know, the people of God and all of its diversity is like known distinctly for being characterized by grace and excellence and patience and courage. And I mean, name a bunch of virtues. Um, And so I, what I, so I should just say that I'm like I'm trying to give you my major struggle this year um, because I'm I'm not always sure what the role of kind of an intellectual cultural artifact is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to do with common is is try to bring to life on the page, particularly our print publication, which is really our gem. Um, mm-hmm. I would say like our special thing. Um, you know, each each issue we sort of treat like it's a dinner party almost, yeah. and we have different. You know, there's a heavy entree kind of essay. There's an appetite, wet your appetite. There's there's a little sherbet sort of cl- palate cleanser. I really do think in those terms, wow. and that's much in terms of content and how we think of the questions we're asking, as well as who. And um, you know, one one thing I've tried to do, and it's it's an ongoing adventure, but um, really trying to encourage what I call street saints or community shepherds, and these are weavers, people who often, you know, they may serve homeless, they may be involved in incredible kind of racial reconciliation work in Detroit, they may be, um, uh, you know, have found like a really interesting model for helping those with developmental uh, disabilities um, and neurological disorders, you know, they may, they may have discovered the power of attachment and love to help like rewire. So I'm, I'm very interested in doers and helping uh-huh. those doers gain some verbal self-confidence to write in our pages. So we're not yeah. only just pontificating from abstraction and on high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how do you kind of build some sort of a friendship even through the pages of a magazine between 
amazingly erudite intellectuals who can, it's like the, they can name what's going on often very powerfully, which yeah. the power of naming is, is no small thing and can sure. help people make decisions in their lives and in their organizations. But how do we get them to be paired with those who, you know, may have gotten a C in English class back in the day, but are actually like really transforming the sphere of influence in their city and their town um, and have some wisdom to share. How do we kind of bottle up their wisdom in a verbal or visual way that the top academics or public intellectuals would, would listen to and respect. So somehow I'm, I'm that that's sort of where I sit every day is trying to bring doers and thinkers together. Um, yeah. I, mean, I love that idea of equipping people who aren't writers to, to tell their story and find their voice. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think, you know, some people when I first, and this is my first, I mean, I'd written for quite a few magazines, but I'd never led one before. And so I was just mm-hmm. thinking of my own vision of what I would do with it. And about a year ago, And um, someone asked me, so is your magazine for readers or for writers? Oh, wow. What a great question. Really great question. And to be honest, you know, obviously we would like to grow. We would like as many people who we think might enjoy us to know about us. So that we have to think from a business perspective, we we do want to serve readers and we want to give them like a meaningful palette within which to have discussions Mm -hmm. with their friends, with those they don't know. So I do think about readers and being creative there, but I in terms of probably how I'm motivated every day and the most meaningful feedback we get, it is when actually just the other day, our next issue, our fall issue is on how do you navigate mass uncertainty? Like we've, you know, experienced this year mm-hmm. and we're trying to find those who have kind of tried to be a little hopeful about it. Who can we learn from who have often experienced precarity in their lives, be they really poor or be they disabled or be they, or what can we learn from jazz and the arts about how to navigate uncertainty and, and, you know, anyway, so it's, so it's a broad ranging theme, but we, I did commission an essay to a woman who um, works with largely like refugee and undocumented immigrant kids in Houston. And she's like, really has this like beautifully developed theology of play and the purpose of play, both in healing, as well as um, helping families who have very little support. And I sort of know this about this organization and it's kind of just embedded in their practices. They've never really articulated it. Mm -hmm. So I asked her to just try to articulate the theory behind why play is so important um, in, in helping these families adjust to American life. And um, she did, and it was quite, you know, it's a more editorial work on our end to Uh work with that sort of person, but the wisdom is just trying to almost like get the, wisdom to be born out of the egg that of stuff that they just do on a daily basis. Yeah, right. Um, and she just wrote me yesterday, like, thank you so much. This is the most like challenging assignment, but I, but I like, it is just like catapulted my ability to both obviously tell our own organization story. Um, but also, uh, I, I think it like concretizes and people, it sort of can take them to the next step in developing their practice and also gives them conversation partners um, out there who may read them, who have something to add. So I think there's an element where I try to view the publication as not just ideas oriented. We really are sort of trying to, through content, um, spark a community yeah. that is appropriate to our writers that they they need to do their work as best as they can and to increase their capacity and, and so on. So yeah, you're back to a relationship too. I guess so. Yeah. It's a little meta. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. 
And so, and, and you haven't used the term affection um, or affections, but you know, the, uh, with with a with a name like comment, it sounds like you know that that you're. It sounds like ideas and and talk, but but yeah. as you know, um, you know, you also the other vitally important thing that that writing and stories do is they shape our affections and they they make us want different things. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, just from my experience with your magazine. I, I know that has that has been the case for me. Yeah. Oh well, thank you. Yeah, no, that, came, let's say I, I take I came for the ideas and I stayed for the affections. <laughs> yeah, that we were just having conversation as a team the other day. What are we best at um, attracting, engaging, or delighting? Um, mm-hmm. Using I think more recent sort of marketing language, and <laughs> without even like a blink, we all unanimously said, we're best at delighting. Yeah, right. <laughs> we were lucky we're there. We need, probably need to work on the other stuff. But um, I, and I By love- the way, you say delighting is marketing language. It's also St. Augustine language. And yeah. Saint, you know, Thomas Aquinas language. And- that's right. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, you asked originally about worldview and why we don't quite think of ourselves that way. Um, I love that you use the word affection and a little also, you know, desires like spraying towards our readers, like more things that they could possibly want and maybe convict to reorder some desires and loves. But I often think, you know, part of our goal when I think about our readers is to give them a unique palette just for understanding in a deeper way, their own role, like trying to give them a sense of moral responsibility and civic responsibility, like their own role in our times across demography, demography and sector. Um, and to just basically say what you just did in a slightly different way, um, to sort of expand their minds and hearts, often in probably a mysterious way that's more just through the alchemy of the experience of reading it to consider the breadth of possibilities that are always, that are inherent you know, in thy kingdom come, which is very animating for us, um, which is sort of a earth centric, but sort of enchanted and enchanted earth. How do you think about playing a role in that like holy enchantment? Mm, That's, that's good stuff. I love it. Um, But this is this bonus question. This is for free. And yeah, what's it like um, working with Canadians? Oh, I love it. Different from working with America. I mean, is is there anything different about the way Canadians think about the world? It has been the best gift to work with Canadians, especially the last couple of years. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little bummer since COVID not being able to fly up there. Um, I think I'm their lone Yankee working in the organization. Um, Sure, they think I'm a little crazy, but um, they're a they're very well. So there's Canada and then there's Cardiff and. I would, my experience thus far has been, um, and also this is in the faith context. Uh, last week, I happened to be part of an American, Amerocentric kind of, what is the future of the church kind of conversation. It was a little bit more targeted specifically in kind of quote, evangelicalism, quote unquote, in sort of a political context. And I confess there were some really sharp people there and thoughtful and, but I kind of left the call a very depressed <laughs> and also felt very small, like, and there's, there, there was a lot of conversation about people feeling like they're losing their dominant place in our society and so on. And I think working, working with an organization that's faith-based in Canada, their entire existence has always, they're in a much more secular country than the U S. So they've Mm -hmm. always kind of had that like remnant 
like humble. They're just not afraid of being countercultural, but not in a culture warrior sense. And then mm-hmm. you add the Canadian kind of um, combination of, I would just say, common sense and in some ways, humility, it may be a little sometimes inferiority complex to be so next to such an enormous, you know, mover and shaker, namely the U.S., but um, I've loved it. I, it I, every time I go up there, I just think they're in a much more, it, it's almost palpable in the air when you go to a pub. It's just a healthier social, they're in a healthier social state than we are. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Tell me, I have I have wondered what it would be like to be the editor in chief of a of a magazine like yours. Maybe you're you are exposed every day to these this great writing, these big ideas. Tell yeah. me about that a little bit. Well, it is a lot sometimes. Um, I think I'm probably still learning my own rhythms of how. So there's there's multiple things going on. There's I think my primary role as editor in chief. I is I guess I would put it like I'm trying to be a discerning host of a conversation, and with the dis, how do I fuel my ability to be quote unquote discerning? It's probably not so much getting bogged down in all the incoming pitches we may get. We do get some amazing you know incoming stuff. It's more like I read a lot of other peer magazines and just try to keep my ear to the ground of. I don't love this phrase, but like, you know, thought leader, you know, how, how are people framing the conversation? And it's just, there's an awareness piece of kind of what are the zeitgeist questions that's this year and how could we feel like we're relevant to them, but, but sort of explore them in a very original and sort of from left field way. So there's just kind of the awareness piece. Um, You know, I've been surprised. I just said this to our managing editor the other day. I don't know if this is pride talking or my own, like I just have a clear vision with the print issue in particular. Uh, Like I get inspired to approach a particular theme and then just brainstorm from there. We don't, we probably reject like 90% of maybe that's high, but we, um, the creative process for us is like brainstorming a theme and then figuring out the mosaic of people who can come at that from so many different angles. Mm -hmm. So we're fairly initiating as an editorial team Uh um, in sort of driving the ship towards people who should be on it, less just sitting there in the ocean waiting for tons of writers to come at us. I see. Yeah. And I don't know if that's even just to quell the potential overwhelm, but there's an element where we want to be a magazine for writers. Like I said, we don't want to just have a very heavy editorial hand where we're just trying to fit people into our vision. But um, I think once we have sort of the foundational question, we're really ourselves so curious about trying to explore, we go out fishing instead of letting the fish come to us. Yeah. Interesting. There are exceptions. I mean, sometimes there are amazing pieces that come in, but that we're like, wow, this is perfect for us. And we'd love to, we'd be so honored to publish it. But um, we're a little, at least at this point, we're a little bit more self-directed. Uh-huh. Is that unusual for uh, for a magazine or is that kind of the way? I don't know, to be honest. I mean, we um, we're, we do th- with the print issue again, our online content is a little bit more um, still tries to be in tune with cultural questions, but is a little bit more random. It's not themed um, with, because each print issue still is loosely around like our, my first issue was like love versus fear. And how is that playing out in individuals and relationships and society at large? Uh, I think our winter one was on sort of tribe and tribalism and dissecting that. And all. when we, 
I, I think for magazines that have a theme, a loose theme and like a canopy around the content, that is probably more normal. Um, but, and some of it's also pace. Like we only really publish one new large essay a week uh, online. Um, and then, you know, 15 to 18 pieces in a given issue. So Mm -hmm. that's at some level, a slow pace, you could argue. So we have to be very choosy. Yeah. Okay. All right. This is a penultimate question because I always have the same last question. Um, I just want to hear about that. You used a verb I've never heard before that makes sense. Catastrophizing. Hmm. Um, Does that just mean making catastrophes where the catastrophe is not I think it's, um, I'm just sort of seeing it a lot and I'm not on Twitter, but I sort of know what's happening on Twitter a little bit with a couple of degrees separated. Um, it just, especially in regards to in the U S context coming up to a presidential election, I'm hearing both within quarters of the faith world and all of its range, as well as far, far outside it. Um, you know, media right now is obsessed with that election and it's been, it's very consequential. And there's, so there's, I think I'm just, I'm hearing a lot of, you know, I think catastrophizing apocalyptic posture um, Mm -hmm. where sort of people have this view that everything hinges on this one day Mm -hmm. and you know, it's basically driven by a sense of fear on either side, left or right. um, That, that this is a moment that's like existential for our society. And if, a choice that I don't think is the wise choice is going to be made. Our society is going to die. So it's just like the drama uh-huh. of it. We're on the, you know, we're on a cliff's edge, sort of a, sort of a feeling. Uh-huh. Well, um, uh, I'm glad you're, you're in a position to, to counteract catastrophizing, right? To say there's. So it just doesn't seem very, um, A, it's not sustainable emotionally or psychically. <laughs> Catastrophizing is not sustainable. <laughs> I don't think so. And uh, it's not good for our relational, like how we approach and be open-minded towards one another. Um, uh, so yeah, we. I would love to try to inhabit a middle voice. And that doesn't mean necessarily always be moderate. And it doesn't mean be like grainy or without punch. But, um, you know, uh, and again, this is, I think, where faith can be helpful, but ours is not the first era to feel some earthquakes at its core. And yeah. um, I guess I believe life is long, world history is long, and mm-hmm. um, we owe it to ourselves and to our fellow neighbors to um, become, you know, put the ordinary virtues first and foremost. And usually those ordinary virtues are kind of small and just... Mm-hmm. Cotidian. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you are, you're in a position uh, by way, by way of encouragement to help people want some things they didn't know they wanted. Mm. And I, I, I think that's, that's one of the great gifts that a writer can give to. Yeah. That's beautiful. Said. Yeah. You didn't know you wanted this, but you know, feel this, <laughs> yeah. try this out. So, all right. Well, the last question always in these conversations is who are the writers who make you want to write? I love that question. Um, well, for me, the first that come to mind and for anyone familiar with my work, they won't be surprised by this, but um, 
I just am a big Dorothy Day lover. She mm-hmm. is a hero of mine in every way, but her writing in particular, I've always just found like very textured. She gets down to like the smells of the chestnuts and how that relates to like urban poverty. And uh-huh. I love, there's a sort of almost a female holism to mm. that. So I, she will always make me want to write Christian Wyman, who I will never ever approximate in gorgeous brilliance, but mm. um, there's something about the way in which he captures the ephemeral Uh, or ethereal, I should say, Uh uh, elements of sort of almost mystical elements of spirituality and faith. Um, I I can never quite explain what I just read of his to someone else, but when I I I immediately feel like taken to a new dimension of clarity for the invisible qualities of our lives. Mm. Um, Also, he's good at describing things that are visible. He, He has a description of a dust devil that he experienced in West Texas when he was little, I thought. I've never seen yes, that. I know that passage. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, and you can tell he's a poet. Like he's got yeah. sort of that eye for the concrete too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, from just because I, my sweet spot is a little bit more narrative nonfiction in my own writing. Um, there's two and they have to both be women um, and they write for the Atlantic. Um, Caitlin Flanagan. I just really respect her and Amanda Ripley, who just, um, she thinks about questions of like beauty in our politics and she's, yeah, i both of their writing just inspires me to write. And then there's another guy who's actually written for comment quite a bit. In fact, I think he used to be on staff, Doug Sikama, um, who's, he wrote a beautiful poem actually recently in this lovely, beautiful magazine that I hope you know of, um, Ecstasis. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that, Ecstasis magazine. It's basically a work of art of a, of a journal. Um, but anyways, I find Doug's writing like always makes me want to always makes me want to write. But I'm I'm a bit of an odd creature in that um, I feel like I'm not a pure writer. Most writers could give you like a hundred names. Uh, for me, it's like I'm very um, I'm more of a, a musical, I guess, in my how I learn and how I think. So you know, anything Ennio Morricone, if I just listen to him or like. Um, you know, there's an, an uh, actually a Nashville-based singer um, named Audrey Assad, who if I ever need to feel like deep and courageous. Yeah. Um, and and then, you know, I, and as someone who really like increasingly is just so drawn to doers who are helping and transforming other people's lives, um, when I get to interview someone who's just in the trenches, um, somewhere I find like I immediately just want to start writing. So I, I think there's something about, um, yes, I love beautiful prose, but um, if I have any gift with words, which I don't always feel I do, <laughs> it's usually inspired. It feels like the best way I could use that is to honor um, someone's praxis and their spirit and, and trying to capture what they often can't themselves. Yeah. Great. Yeah. It's, it's, that's when I see somebody doing what they're really good at, it makes me want to go do what I yes. can do. Yeah. Or, oh, I think it sounds like your point may even have more to do with giving voice or, or, or telling other people about what, what these, what good work these people are doing. Yeah. Yeah. Or trying to capture a way in which, you know, a lot of these, I'm just talking to this woman who runs an organization in Atlanta called Jacob's Ladder, which works with kids with neurological disorders and um, something about the way in which she understands their methodology and was trying to describe it um, paired with her own sort of journey of faith and all of this mm-hmm. very, very raw and difficult, you know, relationships with families who are at their wits end with their kids. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a desire. I feel so changed by those conversations and expanded. Yeah. And there's a desire to just try to capture what is the delta of how I, it's not about me, but somehow in the writing, I get to sort of 
name what has changed a little bit in my own living and posture as a result. So that's great. That's a great way to put it. All right, Ann Snyder, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio in the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to Jess Ray for letting us use her song Too Good as part of this podcast. Visit JessRayMusic.com to hear more of her beautiful songs. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Thank you.